think every interaction is an intervention and even if it can be a short thing you you can make a difference because there is a culture where we often tend to feel I don't know enough about this this is this is I'll refer on to somebody else there's an expert somewhere else that can that can help here and actually if you're the person in the room with that person and maybe they've said something that they've not shared before they've not named to themselves before then actually you don't have to have the answers you don't have to have the knowledge just being with someone listening helping them feel safe and instilling hope can can really make all the difference to um to someone and we've all got those skills if that's not the pep tool you need from a podcast i don't know what is in this episode we're talking about complex issues around mental health and if you have been affected by any of the topics discussed today then please do talk to someone such as friends and family your gp or the samaritans anyway Welcome to this episode of the Geeky Medics podcast. Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of different backgrounds. Today we're joined by Dr. Siwan Roberts, a clinical psychologist who gives us an opportunity to explore what it's like to work in children's mental health, but also a chance to explore childhood adverse experiences and the effects these have both on mental and physical health. This episode is particularly useful if you want to go into psychiatry or clinical psychology, but as you will hear, it's also useful for any medical practitioner or student. I hope you enjoy. Well, I'm Dr. Siwan Roberts. I'm a clinical psychologist um, and having worked in um, children's services, um, child adolescent mental health services and neurodevelopmental services in Northwest Wales, I'm currently on an approved career break from the NHS. So I'm pursuing some academic interests and balancing that with two, two of my own young, young children as well in, in a pandemic as, as many people are doing, I'm sure. So um, yeah. So yeah, I'm on, I'm currently on a, on a, an approved career break. Yes. <laughs> and what is that a break from? What sort of what's your what was or is your day to day job? Um, well, most recently I was working in a neurodevelopmental service for children, and young people, and before then, my main post really since qualifying was working um, full time in a child and adolescent mental health service. So I was a psychologist on on the team there. And I suppose probably the first thing um, for for people who aren't really familiar with the the role of a psychologist or a clinical psychologist, what what differs, you know, what what differentiates you between a psychiatrist or a counsellor or the you know various other mental health sort of roles that we have as part of a sort of multidisciplinary team? What what differentiates you from from that team? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a big question. And, and there are all sorts of different therapists being trained. And I'm not saying that I've got my head around every time that the differences, I guess, the main one being psychology and psychiatry. And I guess, as you're aware, that psychiatrists are medically trained, first and foremost. And I guess that, I mean, there's different psychiatrists and psychiatrists have developed their own personal interests often. And there, there is an overlap then between a psychologist post, but the psychiatry, um, it's, it's psychiatrists that currently um, prescribe medication and there is sometimes a bit of tension between psychologists and psychiatry and 
this idea that um, psychiatrists perhaps arguably tend to subscribe more to the medical model of mental health and mental distress mm. and mm. Um, psychologists may arguably be taking a, a wider view of um, contextual factors but I'm sure it's quite a contentious um, thing and obviously there's psychiatrists and psychologists that are at different ends of that um, um, well if it's an argument or, or ways of, of seeing yeah. um, mental health distress so um, yeah so there's often overlaps um, um, but yes um, in the teams that I've worked with I guess on the ground that psychiatrists have more frequent appointments perhaps shorter appointments um, tend to be more um, involved when there are perhaps complex cases or cases of young people who may require some medication. Um, whereas psychologists have been more, in my experience, involved with um, providing specific therapy. So I was um, part of a dialectical behavior therapy team. Um, so DBT, um, they're providing um, specific forms of therapy and maybe taking a bit, bit more of a longer time to do that, I guess. Mm -hmm. and. One of the things we like to do as psychologists is formulate as well. So we kind of assess the problem, formulate, so make sense of what's happening um, and help join up the dots in that way and then and then offer the intervention. So mm. um, I think some psychiatrists would, would say that they do that as well, but, but psychologists are, are really big on formulation. Um, that, that's, that's one of our kind of key skills, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And so I suppose um, we probably before going into to what you sort of do or what you did day to day, uh, how, how do you become a clinical psychologist? Uh, sort of from the very limited amount I know, it's fairly competitive to, to get into and there's not too many posts, but I imagine it's a role that we need a lot more of. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a bottleneck, really. It, it's become and, and it has been since my day of going back 20 years ago. It's been a really popular subject, psychology. But then there's this real um, competition about so there's only limited um, amount of training spaces. And as you say, there's there's a great need for psychologists um, really at the moment. So, um, yeah, but we can only go with the with the, with the resources we have, the spaces we have for training. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So to be a psychologist um initially you need to have a degree in psychology an undergraduate degree in psychology i think some courses might accept a conversion if you've done a different degree first and it needs to be generally needs to be a two one or a first um in that degree although there's ways around that sometimes as well and then you need to have experience of working with um i guess some of the clinical populations that you would maybe come across as a psychologist so perhaps vulnerable children, young people or older adults or adults um, presenting with um, severe mental health difficulties so that you have experience of working mm. um, with with people really in that sense. And normally, uh, usually that's that's done in, a, in an assistant psychologist post. So many um, trainee clinical psychologists will, will have already spent time working as an assistant psychologist. Um, so when you come across assistant psychologists in service, um, in services, they could be um, quite inexperienced. I mean, you get sometimes you get assistant psychologists who've been around for years, and they kind of they're very competent actually at what they're doing. And you may get assistant psychologists who are kind of mm. newly graduated psychology mm. Um, mm. students, and and they're quite new to to the mm. service. So so that's what um, assistant psychologists um, means really. And yeah, mm. so usually people have been um, assistant psychologists first. Um, and then from that point onwards, it's a, a doctoral type PhD 
after that after you have that time and experience yeah, yeah so it's a doctorate program and um, so it's not a phd because it's not entirely research-based but we do sure. have to submit a thesis at the end and do some independent research and there's the academic aspect so it's a doctorate in clinical psychology so it's abbreviated as declin sci hmm. um so yeah so so we are a doctor but yeah not a phd or not a medical doctor so sometimes it gets a bit confusing <laughs> doesn't it but, but you are a doctor unique... that's the, that's i the am key. a doctor that's the main thing <laughs> um and, and did you enjoy that training i mean was it hard work did you enjoy the process and the, the degrees you did um i did actually um i think it can be really hard work and it depends when it happens in your life and what other things you've got going on because it's quite demanding because you're balancing the academic assignments and deadlines with your clinical work and meeting clients and getting your head around um, providing therapy um mm. but i think it happened at a good time in my life where, where i suppose before having children myself that would have been an added so i, I was able to process that and I guess I've always been interested in both I've been drawn to both the academic aspect and the mm. practical aspect in a sense and sometimes mm. it could get you know if you're drawn to one or, or the other then the other part can get a bit stressful and I think mm. I um I'm not saying I didn't have my challenges I'm sure but but I, I did enjoy training and I think because maybe I had more of that academic um teaching side and we had time for reflection and um, things that you've got much less time for once you're qualified actually as a mm, as mm. a practitioner so I I quite enjoyed having um that space to reflect and connect with fellow trainees and things like that so yeah, yeah it was a good yeah. overall a good time I think yeah so you obviously went to university to do your undergraduate degree where where did you train initially um yeah so I did my undergraduate degree at Cardiff and then um and then a, a uh, an MPhil there as well and, and I um, did my doctorate at Bangor University so um, so yeah pretty much you know, I've, I've, tra- I've, I've been in Wales doing my training really it was kind of returning back to my roots so I've mm. I've worked elsewhere as well in um, Oxfordshire NHS Trust for a year and I've traveled a bit but it's, which is good but I yeah I'm, I'm from North Wales and, and yeah my, my first language is Welsh so I'm um, um, extremely pleased to be able to contribute to developing a, a sort of a bilingual Welsh English um, service in in North Wales um, and um, yes and I think as a psychologist it makes me aware of you know not English isn't everybody's first language that we come across even if mm. the first language is another language I don't understand but I can understand mm. emotionally as a human what it is to have a different first language you know so yeah, um, yeah. so yes um, I suppose when you're having um, yeah. such detailed and uh, intimate conversations with people if you can do that in their first language that that immediately makes them I imagine feel feel much more comfortable um to, to say what they want to say and things absolutely absolutely and no matter how fluent we are I mean I'm speaking to you now in my second language when I'm feeling really vulnerable or in distress and there's certain times I know you'll understand as a medic there's certain times in your life when you are more vulnerable and a young young children or perhaps older adults or when you're going through childbirth I imagine myself or anything like that mm. going back to that to your, to your mother to your, your, your first language is is mm. yeah is really important and and quite powerful emotionally and um yeah it, it really makes a difference and um people have been concerned about that in in North Wales sometimes that they're not able to access 
Welsh language um, services um, when they need it, um, you know, psychological services and so on. So I'm mm-hmm. really pleased to be able to hopefully contribute something t- towards that and, and bring that yeah. to people's awareness, I guess, as well. Mm. Is that another excuse to stay in Wales as well? If you didn't have it, if you oh, didn't yeah. have as many already. That's right. It's a beautiful area. And where I worked in Cams is a really rural area, so not very densely populated. So mm. lots of driving, but so, so yeah, beautiful areas. And yeah, um, I like large cities as well, but but it's it just, yeah, it's a beautiful area in North Wales. So exactly. It's, um, yeah. yeah, good reason to stay here. <laughs> so I suppose um, people, people who are listening to the podcast might be, um, might be, people who are interested in clinical psychology or people interested in psychiatry is from a medical student point of view what's the day-to-day job like what do you do day-to-day and in in of a week well yeah as a psychologist as i mentioned i guess we we assess and then formulate people's difficulties and then offer interventions so um my week was in cams really i started with sort of initial assessment appointments um which We'd probably leave about two two hours at least for these initial assessment appointments. Yeah. These were families that we'd been referred into the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, and they'd mm-hmm. been accepted. So I would, um, in these initial assessment appointments, we'd do them in twos sometimes. Sometimes I'd do them on my own, and we'd we'd give the family some time to explain to us in a bit more detail what's brought them here, what are their presenting concerns, and depending on the age of the child, I might see the child and person on their own as well to have mm. that space alone. Mm. And then I'd also go a bit further and ask about... Um, I got a bit better at drawing family trees and because um, that, that can get a bit complicated with representing everyone in the family and yeah. who's who... Um, um, where do you come from and sort of asking potentially about relationships with other peoples in the family um, any history of mental health difficulties in the family and that would a lot of information would come out mm. of um of that sort of questioning in terms of again formulating a young person's difficulties and relating it back to the context of their wider family and mm. and experiences they'd had earlier in their development um sometimes some intergenerational patterns as well um but certainly thinking back to the child's early development, so we'd be asking about that as well. And then I guess at the end, um, yeah, ha- having a, a stab at an initial formulation of where we see the, the main um, difficulties at the moment, how we understand they've, they've come about, the explanation, and then what we recommend. So we may recommend that the young person um, has regular therapeutic sessions um, through, through our service, through CAMS, or we may recommend that um, perhaps they're better suited elsewhere. There's other things that they could try first. So they're often the young people I come across are very resourceful themselves and have many things that they could try um, themselves. Um, we could signpost to other services. Um, so we give our initial thoughts and sort of it's a bit collaborative. So we, we want to see that the family and people are okay with that, that they're in agreement and then um, and then, yeah, the next day we'd have a multidisciplinary meeting where people present the assessments they've done. So we kind of check with other um, people, they may be nurses or social workers or psychiatry. So just mm-hmm. to check, have I missed something here? Is anything mm-hmm. else we could have done? Um, and then, of course, the rest of the week might be um, delivering on the interventions themselves. So I'd have some slots for young people on my own caseload. So I'd be seeing them perhaps individually or in a group setting. Um mm-hmm. 
Uh, I was part of the dialectical behaviour therapy uh, programme in, in CAMS for a time. So I had a consult meeting with the other therapists and then we'd, we'd be um, offering individual and group sessions for, for DBT during the week. Mm. Um, so yes, um, and a lot of ringing around and connecting with other agencies as well. So social services, education, speech and language therapy. So there's often... Um, in between mm. sessions, trying to get a hold of people and writing reports, um, yeah, documenting things on paper. So, um, yeah, I think I've covered the week there rather than the day, haven't <laughs> yeah. I? But it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. the whole whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, it's reasonably um, varied, I guess. For which mm-hmm. is what something you enjoy about the job. I mean, yeah. Um, and working with young people, I guess the, the reward really is seeing when a young person, I guess, ideally tells you in words or perhaps on a written card and tells you, that, you know, that working with them has has really made a difference mm. to them in their lives or where you feel that emotionally. And that's that's the reward. That's the reward for for doing the work. And yeah. and also, as I mentioned, the, the young people themselves, I'm often inspired by, um, you know, I've seen great artists or great insights and wisdom and sometimes these young people have great challenges and um mm. adversities in their lives but their you know their their strengths and way of ways of um getting around that can be quite inspiring so I mm. enjoyed um I enjoyed seeing that and um and um call its colleagues as well isn't it it's colleagues that um look out for each other and mm. um supports each other and that's that's the enjoyable part as well yeah yeah I, I mean there's obviously lots of different areas of, of clinical psychology but I mean what what drew you to CAMS and working with with children as opposed to any other sort of area and I suppose off that um, what sort of drew you to studying sort of childhood trauma you know in relation to their symptoms and what they're coming in with and and how they're presenting to you that sort of dynamic is probably quite an interesting relationship I imagine yeah um yeah sure so I guess there's two different parts so the first part was the initial draw to work working with children um and I guess since I've been young myself maybe I was was the eldest sibling you know and I looked I I often spent my summer holidays working in holiday clubs for children and um I guess I was always aware of yeah children's vulnerability children's powerlessness so there's this um drive to kind of um uh ease children's suffering really um I'm, I'm kind of drawn drawn to that idea um and it stuck with me and I say I think I've got that as well as the academic interest or the the critical mind the analytical um thinking to, about about the subject as well wanting to understand yeah. what how children develop and when they develop I've been particularly interested in when they develop theory of mind when children develop the capacity to think about other people's thoughts and feelings and mm. so I've got this academic sort of interest as well as that drive I guess to improve children's well-being Mm. and then I guess it's through doing clinical work it's following after qualifying as a psychologist Mm. um that I really became more and more drawn to this idea I guess of childhood trauma childhood suffering and it's Mm. from seeing and the children young people presenting to us as a service and um whereas I guess the last few decades we've tended to conceptualize children's distress in terms of diagnosable mental health disorders mm. and that's the criteria they need to meet to, mm. to to get to services um there is more of an interest recently in kind of trauma-informed work and um 
there's been this surge in interest in um, adverse childhood experiences and so on. And I guess reading about this stuff and hearing from people with lived experience of mm. mental health difficulties has just brought it home to me really that this is a lot to do with what's happened to people and that we've perhaps overly focused on what's wrong or describing mm. what's wrong with mm. the children and people and great going to great lengths to assess the presenting difficulties and and perhaps not enough on on what's what's happened to them and that mm. anybody's behaviors or what they're expressing to us in terms of feelings and thoughts are understandable there's ways of making sense of it mm. once you understand the context of what's happened to a child and they might they they usually don't understand that that themselves mm. you know they they mm. they don't realize they don't connect the dots themselves so it's our job sometimes to to help um in a non-judgmental way where we can to try and yeah make mm. make, make those connections really so that's so that's come later this this um um yeah interest in in the trauma ad- adversity mm. um aspects mm. as well yeah and that's really interesting the concept that they themselves might not might not realize the cause of of how they are currently um and like you say concentrating on the cause rather than on how they are as a person and why they're presenting to you um yeah. in the acknowledgement that that cause is the the cause of why they're there so that's right yeah, yeah that's right and but there's been recently a few kind of high profile tv programs and things of um, I guess adults who've suffered um, childhood sexual abuse um, by past, usually quite quite powerful adults in their lives and whatever. And often adults who may be um, presenting with um, sort of panic panic attacks or um, low mood, um, they may have had not not always, of course, but mm. they may well have had some of these kind of abusive, whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse when they were younger and they, they don't themselves make the connection um, mm. between their experiences and what's happening now and perhaps something's triggered it to, to them you know later in life that they're, mm. they're having their own children or um or they, there's sometimes some sensory triggers in the environment and they're not connecting that with maybe mm. things that have happened to them and it requires somebody an outsider well maybe a psychologist or a therapist to, to yeah to help mm. make sense and, and join the dots and um and that in itself is is an intervention. I think when it's done well, it, it's it's validating to a person, mm. and um, and when it's done in a non-judgmental aspect, and it's in, it, and time's taken to make sense of it, mm. um, it helps somebody understands themselves really. And once you have that awareness of yourself and you understand yourself, it's mm. it's easier to to deal with with who mm. you are. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I suppose drilling down into these these sort of backgrounds of of I mean, people you work with, children and, and young adults, that's must be quite difficult for you as well. So you must take some of that on board. I mean, you might try not to, perhaps, but as depending on the type of therapy you're doing, but you take some of that on board. I mean, how do you yeah. yourself sort of cope with with that? Yes, that's really true, and it's a constant journey, really. Um, and I mean, the way I've coped with it now is taking an approved career break. So I'm getting that <laughs> that break. And um, and but I think that's really in all seriousness, it, it's needed at times, and we need to recognise when you know, we need to set limits um, and boundaries. But it's a real balancing act because actually that act of empathy and feeling what somebody else is feeling is is so valuable, and it's what makes the difference as well in therapy. Mm. So it's. Mm somehow finding the way of doing that while also p- 
putting the boundary in and and looking after yourself and um as a newly qualified um I did struggle with that I did sometimes take you know um take home some I was worried mm. about some of the people I was seeing and it was hard to switch off from from that worry um mm. but yes as um as time's gone on I think that's the ultimate that's the ideal where you can hold somebody else's feelings and fully empathize with them in the Mm. session and then also um put the boundary around yourself and it's about self-care and it's about having effective supervision as clinical mm. psychologists we we like having supervision and and supervision is a way to process your own thoughts and feelings in relation to young people and when you have good supervision um that's a way of letting go mm. um and it's having the basic self-care things um which i'm not saying i do perfectly well every time but it is it is things mm. like exercising eating well um drinking sleeping um having your own creative outlets attending to your relationships yourself um i know all these to be true it's it's it is it's always a, a juggling act and it's a journey to try and uh, get get it right um mm. and yeah and the other thing is is being aware of yourself as i mentioned mm. i think like practicing mindfulness i've i've found that really helpful so mindfulness is a um core part of dbt so as i was trained to be a dbt therapist the mindfulness um uh part i did find particularly helpful so again it's finding your way of, of either meditation or mindfulness mm. and just increasing your awareness of yourself really is is mm. is a way of is a, is one um helpful way of, of coping with that yeah 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 what what sort of skills do clinical psychologists need do you think I mean we've probably talked about quite a few of them already um but are there any particular skills you think makes a good clinical psychologist yeah um well when we trained as a psychologist we told that we trained as um, reflective scientist practitioners so I think um ideally that you've got um a, a bit of all three really um but in practice obviously once you're in a service the focus is on the practice mm. you know get get through the list and, and get get the therapies done and um yeah there's less time for the science for the research and and mm. for the mm. re reflection mm. um and um uh, i used to think that reflection was a bit um when i started training oh what are we doing just sitting around and um reflecting on how we feel this is a bit of a privilege and other people are really suffering and but actually um as time went on I just more and more became this is the crucial point this is this is the stuff that's really important so it's actually again mm. um I think qualities of a psychologist that that ability to be aware of your own I guess we've all had our own childhoods and so your own triggers your own childhood your own mm. um, emotions and thoughts um and then um being able to regulate that or, or, or put that to one side when needed I suppose and then mm. of course there's the personal personable qualities hopefully that you'd like a psychologist to be yeah. of course empathic and being able to relate to people making them feel at ease making them feel safe mm. listening yeah that listening is an underrated skill I think so really listening to somebody else um mm. but these are skills that will de be developed through training as well um but yeah these are mm. the sorts of things you'd hope to find in good psychologist yeah. hopefully in a thought i mean i think as a medical student one of the probably one of the best consultations i saw was was um in cams a psychiatrist in cams um, with a patient and i just i just think the way you navigate people's thoughts is just such an interesting concept and this particular psychiatrist did it very well and you just then realize how much of a skill that is to be able to 
unpick things but to do it in a in a like saying in an empathic way to, to do it without people feeling judged and things i mean that sure yeah yeah, that yeah. skill that you must just develop yeah. over time is a really yeah sure one. and it's naming things and it's acknowledging that difficult experience will have had um an impact without mm. yeah as you say judging or fearing that so um yeah i i think a lot of it does come with practice as well it's it's yeah once you've had the practice and you've maybe as a trainee not done it exactly the best way sometimes and then you mm. you sort of um yeah learn ways around it um are you i i because some people um when you talk to them about you know how someone ends up um in terms of their mental health are you someone that sort of firmly believes that a, a childhood and their experiences in childhood you know is the the, the foundations of someone's mental health like, is is that sort of the biggest driver to someone's overall mental health is childhood experiences yeah so so childhood trauma can't be the whole story and of course mm. what's a trauma for one person may not be a trauma for the other person mm. you know it may the same events could take on a different meaning and it could have a different context um, and at the same time I think it's important to note that what happened to us in childhood affects us later emotionally and psychologically you know our earliest relationships with our caregivers form mm. um, certain patterns and ways of interacting with adults in adult relationships later in our lives so it doesn't have to be a trauma defined as a trauma it's, it's the fact mm. that whatever's happened you know we've all had childhoods and whatever's happened to us um, in in childhood will impact um, on um, our later kind of emotional and psychological functioning in some way but we we can we can uh, influence that though we, we can do things about that yeah. um but I, I think I guess I've been drawn to to the work sort of stemming from the seminal studies conducted in the 90s on adverse childhood experiences in in the United States um, by Dr. Felitti, Dr. Ander and some other co-authors and um basically what they did there was survey 17,000 adults and ask them about um sort of 10 adverse childhood experiences as, as they defined them so these were specific events that could happen in childhood so it included abuse you know physical sexual emotional um, abuse neglect but also some challenging events that can happen within a household perhaps witnessing some domestic violence someone in the house having difficult um being dependency on al um, alcohol drugs um maybe a parent spending time in prison mm. losing a parent perhaps through um either through that parent sadly dying or um or leaving the house separating um so um but what they found and it's been replicated internationally including in wales itself is that um around half the population have experienced one of these adversities. Um, they're extremely common, you know, so half of us will, will have experienced one of these and around 13, 14% of us will have experienced four or more of these adversities. And um, the second thing was that there's a dose-response relationship between the number of adversities, of these adversities you'd had, and a whole range of sort of detrimental health outcomes. So mm -hmm. yes, in terms of mental health, in terms of experiencing depression or suicidality, but also in terms of physical health, um, heart disease and so on. Um, so it's a really huge and fascinating um, topic and there's so much more that needs to get to, to, yeah. be, to get done there. Yeah. Um, it is important to note that these were large epidemiological studies um, and while they're 
telling us something on, on a sort of population level, um, we can't really infer anything on an individual um, patient level. And I think um, we should be um, quite wary of um, the idea of asking patients individually about their ACEs. Mm. Um, there's a risk that it's not helpful um, that it, it's certainly not meaningful on an individual level and and at worst it could be harmful and um, mm. so by you know giving an individual patient say or clients an, an a score um we could be stigmatizing that person and um you know we could be giving them a really unhelpful and, and meaningless really message that because you have this you know relatively high a score mm. then you're more likely to have all of these other bad things happen to you um, later on. So I think it's um, we have to be really, really careful in terms of how we apply this research. And for me, the message is coming out of it is just how common these adverse childhood experiences are. So we need to look at ourselves, um, other people, um, clients coming into services as being relatively quite likely to have experienced these yeah. Adverse, yeah. Um, adverse things in childhood. And um, and secondly, it's pointing to an association between things that happen in childhood and later health. So I think that's important. So I think when we're kind of um, formulating with an individual client or patient, that of course we tailor it to match their unique or individual situation, um, but that we're aware that we're looking we're looking at perhaps some child um, some challenges in childhood or trauma in childhood. And um, and letting that fit into our understanding um, of of their current presenting difficulties um, and just making making that link. So I think uh, the consequence of this research is that childhood trauma is recognised more as being kind of central to um, mental health difficulties and how they're presented in children and, and adults. Um, and um, there's some way to go with the research but cautions required as well about how we apply these, these findings to practice so um yeah so I'm, I'm interested in that really and in getting um more draw, drawn into that and working out exactly how how that works um yeah well I can yeah I could definitely see that I mean that's absolutely fascinating how you know like you're saying adverse childhood experiences can 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 obviously i mean we know that form someone's mental and, and, and physical health later on in life but actually sometimes picking out on those things you know isn't isn't always helpful um and i can i can totally understand why you why you want to study it and and, and explore all these things further i just think the reason also why we don't acknowledge childhood trauma and um, perhaps enough of why perhaps historically of a part of history it hasn't been acknowledged is because of its because it's painful it's really painful to acknowledge yeah. um the truth of um the extent that children have suffered and we'd rather um sometimes bury our head in the sand and, and not recognize that this these things are happening to children um so i'm I'm pleased I think there's some progress there. People mm. are talking about their experiences of childhood abuse more openly now. And I think that's positive. Um, so I'm hoping that's moving in the right direction. But I think that's why sometimes reluctant to go there. It's because mm. it's too painful mm. or perhaps too triggering for us personally because it's bringing yeah. up some yeah. difficult things. Um, so I think that's why we've not gone there. Um 
with childhood trauma um well i mean just just because something is is difficult doesn't mean we we you know obviously shouldn't investigate and research it but yeah i mean i i I get why we previously perhaps haven't and they're sort of buried our buried our head sort of thing but um I, I wonder, sort of talking on a, on a wider note now, um, you know, not, not sort of academically, but on a wider sort of systemic note, we obviously know that funding to mental health services in the NHS is, is you know, it's stretched. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And, and you know, have, have you sort of seen any cases or, 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 or witness, you know, patients, you know, needing services but can't access them and, and, and that sort of thing. You hear a lot about it in the media. Sure. Um, and there's been a huge demand, a huge, huge rise in, in demand in terms of um, young people um, suffering with mental health difficulties. So I guess I know that from things I've read, I guess, from the Welsh government here, but, but also um, on the ground. I know that um, practitioners who've been around longer than me, say, were saying, it used, to, it used to be quite an unusual event for a young person to have been admitted to hospital following self-harm or attempting to end their lives. And, and when I was working there, this was a, a, a sadly a, a routine. We, we were seeing this um, fairly frequently and, and we had staff covering um, uh, yeah, covering hospital, um, uh, the children's ward in hospital to, yeah. to meet with these young people. Um, and... Um, Yes, that the demand feels um, far greater than 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 what we have the resources for, and and similarly in the neurodevelopmental service I worked with later, there's a waiting list for um, autism and ADHD assessments that um, people are working hard to try and reduce that. It, it's it's specifically to get an ASD assessment, and mm. it's it's it can be quite frustrating, and and often often when um, the family's waiting, it's not an ASD or ADHD assessments that they most need perhaps, or sometimes that can be helpful, but maybe it's some other needs that they have, but it's just frustrating that you can't sort of give that time, I guess, initially. Um, Mm. And I think that's why, again, we need to look at, um, and I think the Welsh government are very much um, thinking um, along these lines themselves, but we need to look Mm. at prevention Um, and ways of um, making a difference at a sort of community level, working with other services mm. and preventing these kinds of um, um, difficulties um, emerging um, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. first place. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a long, it's a long, long game. But yes, um, it's, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, I guess you have to look at when, when children and people are, suffering or perhaps self-harming to, to the degree that we are seeing these days maybe you need to question well yeah what can we do differently as a society mm-hmm. as people mm-hmm. or we need to connect and obviously the pandemic's been completely unique in isolating all yeah. of us and not being able to reach out and talk to our neighbors and and, and check in on one another but mm-hmm. i think we need to get better at, at doing that really and mm-hmm. um and yeah so and and be curious about what's happening and then um, I often quote the, the, the Desmond Tutu um, who said um, we need to stop pulling people out of the river and look upstream to understand why mm. why they're falling in. And yeah. that's where my interest is in really, really understanding mm. what yeah. what's happening. Why, why are we pulling all of these children out of the river and what, what's happening earlier on? And yeah, um, yeah so um, I, suppose, I mean, that's what you're yeah. saying is is the the, the demand over 
I don't know a period of time but the demand is far far outweighs what we what we can provide as a service why yeah. I, I mean it's, it's I'm sure it's multifactorial but yeah why why has the demand increased that much what it, well I mean, yeah, just I've, childhood experiences or is it size? Yeah. is it us being more aware of it I, yeah as you say, it, it is multifactorial and there's so many theories and hypotheses out there. Could Yes. Um, I mean, of course, the rise in technology and children and people using um, social media, the, the children, people's screen time has um, mm. escalated. That on its own isn't 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 the reason, but that's a, mm. a fact. And I think when we look at um, children, young people use of social media and the fact that, um, you know, the experience of being bullied by other young people used to be something that happened in the playground when, when you were with other people. But now you can be bullied, as it were, online in your own bedroom and, and people can give you these very threatening or um, very mm. disturbing comments. Um, so so that's changed. That's changed the nature of our interactions with us quite quickly. Mm. Um so that's a factor. Um, and yes, there is, um, you know, the, the social inequalities that, and, and there is um, childhood suffering. And I think it's quite positive on the whole with becoming more aware of um, mm. children being abused and people talking about that more, because I think mm. it's it's been there for a long time, but it was better concealed. So I think that's quite positive that we're talking about mm. that more um so but yeah there's there's all so the, the, yeah there's some positive growth as well but there's all of these um um different factors and um yeah p- perhaps social inequality um and um i think religion did a lot and, and p- some people are, are, are still religious but religious religion did a lot to hold people or contain people the communities yeah communities yeah. And, and and checking in on each other so the loss of the loss of religion people aren't as religious not, not that i'm saying that people need to be religious but i just mean we've lost something with, with mm. that loss of religion That's we've lost yeah. some yeah. coming together and um, checking in on each other um, some some rituals, some some feeling of being contained. Some it was a regular event that used to yeah. happen. So yeah. I've often that's just something I've I've wondered myself. But I think, yeah, it's um we, we, there's no going back, is there? This is yeah, you, know, you can't we, sort we, of we, we, the world is changing. Go to church or something. Yeah, um, yeah. adapt with it. But yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, no, <laughs> I, that's an interesting thought actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you got any sort of words of wisdom? Um, for for healthcare professionals uh, working with the patient cohorts you work with, is there any sort of pearls, um, words of wisdom, really, of, of of tips you would recommend to people? I think don't un- underestimate um, your um, ability to make a difference, even in a really short ta- time. You know, an appointment. Um, actually validating somebody's experiences, really listening to them, making them feel safe mm. and instilling hope, you know, letting people know things won't always be this way. Mm. Things can change. Um, are really powerful interventions. And another psychologist I'm following, actually, um, Dr. Karen Traisman, she said, I think every interaction is an intervention. And mm. even if it can be a short thing you you can make a difference because there is a culture where we often tend to feel I don't know enough about this this is this is I'll refer on to somebody else there's an expert somewhere else that can that can help here and actually if you're the person in the room with that person and maybe they've said something that they've not shared before they've not named Mm. to themselves before Mm. then actually 
you don't have to have the answers you don't have to have the knowledge just being with someone listening helping them feel safe and instilling hope can can really make all the difference to um to someone and we've all got those skills and um yeah sometimes there's less of a need for these so-called experts as as we are psychologists that then we think you know, we can we can all make a difference like that i guess um, i think that's health, a, um, healthcare professionals are very good at doing doing that already i think you know a lot of them yeah but yeah i i think that's a very nice um nice little bit to end on there actually yeah. that was a nice bit of hope at the end um yeah. that everyone can in their small way make a difference regardless of sort of okay. if you feel you're underqualified to to do that um thank you very much for joining us on the podcast that was really interesting just to hear about your your career and what you're planning on doing and, and what you're studying and what you have done it's really really interesting so thank you well well thank you very much for having me um as we'd say um, in Wales, Diachmaur. was fascinating and is exactly why this podcast exists to to understand other jobs in the world of healthcare if you did enjoy the episode and, and want to hear more from us please consider subscribing to your podcast provider you can also follow geeky medics on instagram twitter and facebook we'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next as always thank you to the producers of the podcast emma harvey and lewis potter